Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 6, Beyond the Wall is over, but we're just getting started on our deep dive of this week's show here on Post Show Recaps It Now. Here are the two guys who never stop whinging. I'm Rob Sister, and here's Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? Josh Wingler. Yes. Yes. Is whinging a real word, or did the hound make that up? I've never whinged. I've never used the word whinge. Uh, I imagine that there is, uh, I, I don't know. I'm not going to advise that we like look up a uh, urban dictionary uh, right now. Yeah. But maybe that would have been useful before we got on the podcast. Hashtag whinge of winter. Is that the new George R.R. <laughs> R. Martin uh, story? <laughs> I think that might be it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Josh, a crazy episode last night. Everybody's talking about the birth of the ice dragon or the death of a real dragon. Birth of an ice dragon. A really crazy night on Game of Thrones setting up Sunday's season seven finale. Yeah. I mean, we were at least I mean, I was very hung up on the fact that we were going to lose like a ton of characters in this episode. And boy, Fooled you. You, fool, you fooled me, <laughs> fooled me, Benioff yeah. and Weiss. Wow, the greatest trick that they ever pulled. Yeah, where was, was Viserion uh, on your death rankings? Not on there, not on there. Didn't have a dragon on there, didn't have any of that. So, um, I mean, we really should have called that dragons were going to get involved in this fight. Like, that feels like, in retrospect, like, I can't believe we didn't see any of that coming. Um, but the the death of a dragon, you know, with seven episodes left on Game of Thrones, that's that's a major deal. You know, if, if we've been thinking that Game of Thrones has been moving really fast this past season, I think things are really going to speed up with an ice dragon in the White Walker army. So it's an exciting development. It was also just brutal. Uh, I couldn't stop looking at my cats without getting really sad in the aftermath of this episode. I don't know why. Like, there's just something like, you know, the dragons were our pets, right? Like, Game of Thrones right. has really de-emphasized the dire wolf. So you really look at those dragons as, uh, as the mascots of Game of Thrones. And I don't know. I just got very sad. What are you upsetting. more worried about? Your cat, something happening to him or being resurrected as a zombie cat, an ice cat? Well, I have seen Pet Cemetery, so I am nervous about that. Like, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a daunting prospect. Like, I love you, Pardo. I love you, Bella. But whenever you guys go, like, I'm not taking you to the Pet Cemetery and bringing you back. Like, I'll just get new cats. All right. But not ice cats. Was that kind of dark? Was that dark? Was that dark? Ice cats might be cool. I don't know. Ice cats would be fun. Fire-breathing cats would also be great. Okay. Well, a lot to break down. Of course, uh, we are going to get into our feedback show coming up later on this week. So make sure you get your feedback questions in for that show. You can email GOT at postshowrecaps.com or go to postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail for that. And make sure you don't miss the feedback show coming up when you're subscribed. Postshowrecaps.com slash GOT. G-O-T iTunes. Josh, where do you want to start? I know you probably have been uh, nonstop doing interviews with all sorts of Game of Thrones people since the episode aired for everything you do for THR. So what have you been up to? I'm coming up for air right now on this podcast after uh, I've completed seven of eight bland interviews for after today. After the interviews pulled you into the icy abyss. Yes, yes. yes. And the, the hound, or should I say the dog, pulled me out of the uh, the icy abyss to save my life. Uh, not all Game of Thrones. Actually, some Marvel's The Defenders interviews going on over at THR right now, which we're podcasting about here on Post Show Recaps, by the way. Really fun podcast going on with Jim Gibbons as we're talking about the eight episode of The Defenders. That's neither here nor there right now. Um, I'm also talking to a bunch of people from Game of Thrones. I already have actually at this point talked to Richard Dormer, who plays Beric Dondarrion and told me the secret to his awesome Beric Dondarrion voice is 20 Marlboro lights a day. Uh, Not advisable, I don't think. 
if you want to have an awesome Barrick voice, maybe just do an impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, also spoke with Ian Glenn, who plays Jorah Mormont, who had a lot of insight into what it's like to lose a dragon. This was a guy who has been in the midst of the dragon storyline from the very start of the show. Also talked to uh, Tormund Giants Bane himself, Christopher Hevju, who was calling in from Norway. We talked about the eclipse for a little while. I don't think that's going to make it into the article. Was he pro-eclipse uh, or anti-eclipse? He's pro-eclipse. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I would you. Why would you be anti-eclipse you know this is a natural phenomenon this is a scientific wonder josh just you know that you and your fancy eclipse do you realize that the american workforce lost 700 million dollars in productivity today because of the eclipse is that true yeah, I am staunch anti-eclipse. Wow, so, you're anti-eclipse. I'm not surprised. Somehow I'm not surprised, Rob Sesternino, that you are Do you are know how many people burn their eyes staring at the sun today? I definitely don't need any further help going blind. <laughs> like, that's just naturally happening for me anyway. So I was inside. I did not get to see any of the eclipse. But Tormund Giants Bane, pro-eclipse, uh, also spoke with director Alan Taylor about this episode. So he had some insight into the thing as well. Uh, so all those interviews going up thr.com slash Game of Thrones. And I've basically, uh, I've had no time to like really oddly like consider Game of Thrones outside of just like the interview grind. So this will be my first time talking out a lot of uh, the developments of the episode. So I'm excited about it. How was your podcast with Steven yesterday? Oh, it was really fun last night. Uh, we got into everything and you know, the way that the episode ended with that big reveal of the ice dragon opening its icy blue eye, the way that you close the episode, I think everybody was sort of like, it's so fun to do the podcast right after an episode like that because everybody's just like oh my god oh my god uh and uh, i'm glad to finally be able to talk with you about it yeah gonna be fun stuff so yeah i guess let's just let's just dig into it should we dig in with like i don't know should we eulogize viserion that was very sad that was really upsetting a bit of the Jan Brady of dragons, uh, certainly not the Marsha Drogon, and yeah. uh, certainly not the cuter Cindy Rhaegal. Drogon, know, Drogon, Drogon! Very sad day for uh, Viserion's uh, significant other, George Dragonglass, also. <laughs> <laughs> it's a deep hole. It's good. House, all the House Brady jokes are good. Ice Dragon, Josh. What are the... What what is there a precedent for an ice dragon? There's ice dragons that are uh, that are spoken of in terms of myth in the world of ice and fire, both in terms of Planetos and also the gigantic book called The World of Ice and Fire, where there are ice dragons that are said to be roaming in the lands far, 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 far north. We have not seen such dragons in the books or on the show. Now we see an ice dragon, but it's really it's more uh, it's more of a white. It's I don't know if you would call this an ice dragon necessarily i'm very curious to see the mechanics of this dragon are we going to see a dragon that is like breathing ice fire is it going to be breathing standard issue fire what's gonna happen with this thing cold breath cold hands who we saw last night Mm -hmm. uh so i'm i'm curious about how that's going to work but i think in the context of a song of ice and fire in the in the context of the of the saga that george r r martin has written that ice dragons are talked about but never really seen never really glimpsed maybe these two things are one and the same and i'm wondering if a song of ice and fire is building towards a similar event where one of the white walkers will convert a dragon that has fallen into one of their own beasts this feels like such a major event that it's hard to imagine that the books aren't driving towards a similar thing so uh, i do think that this is probably one of those occasions where like 
the show is tipping the hand of some major thing that's coming up in the book. So what are the implications now that the Night King has an ice dragon? Do you see this being something that allows him to either A, take down the wall or get his forces beyond the wall? Does that help with that particular problem? I think at the very least, the second thing, if not the first thing. And I mean, we've been waiting for the wall to come down forever and having a massive fire breathing dragon could help in that effort for sure. Unless it's an ice breathing dragon. Unless it's, yeah. And then it just like makes it colder and he just like fortifies the wall. He's like, ah, oh, shouldn't have <laughs> <Yeah>. done that. <laughs> really messed up. Now we just got to walk around up here again for a little while. Oh, man, I thought this show was about to end. Um, I think that that's something that you could certainly see. But look, even if that doesn't happen, dragons can fly mighty high, as we saw uh, by virtue of the fact that Daenerys and three dragons were able to clear the wall and go into the realm beyond the wall in the episode Beyond the Wall. Uh, so I think that at the very least, the Night King... Uh, you know, who's been dilly-dallying for certainly this season and all of these past seasons, the excuses are coming up on empty pretty soon. I think that the Night King can fly now. The Night King should be able to get into Westeros, honestly, as soon as next episode. I think that that's probably going to be a key part of whatever cliffhanger is uh, taking us out of season seven and paving the way for the final season of the show. Well, what's the hurry for the Night King? I feel like that there's a lot of like micromanaging what the Night King is doing. Like people know how to lead an army of the undead better than the Night King. Isn't it a better strategic move for him? Let winter come. Let winter naturally wipe out half of Westeros. And I feel like that his job is going to be so much easier after they run out of food and run out of resources and half of them freeze to death. Yeah, but the problem with that now is mankind is getting ready. You know, winter is here and the people of Westeros are starting to figure that out. The element of surprise. Yeah, Daenerys like fully knows it now. You know, she's completely on board. John and Daenerys and the rest of their crew are on their way back to King's Landing. You know, it wasn't a total loss, this ridiculous mission that they went on. They do have a zombie bagged up that they're bringing down to King's Landing. And maybe that's going to work. Cersei, certainly, even before she saw this thing, was open to the idea of an alliance with the Dragon Queen. If it makes sense for now, if it's something that we can do right now, this is the Tywinian tactic. Let's just go for that. So I think that Cersei's probably going to be decently on board. I think that like the ingredients for the end game are really starting to come into focus here where you can see this truce between mankind. You can see this truce between the two queens and the king in the north and they're going to come together and fight the White Walkers. But I think that because of that, the Night King, it behooves him to to move on Westeros right now. And Winter's basically here. You know, it's not like in like its most aggressive form of here, uh, but it's here. It's here and it's, you know, it's probably now is really the only time to strike with all of these forces of the living starting to rally together or starting to get into a place where they could start rallying together. I think that we're going to see the Night King make his move. Also, there's only seven episodes left of Game of Thrones. Time yeah. to get going. <laughs> Got to step to it, Night King. So so do you feel like that following this meeting between Danny and Cersei, do you think that Cersei is going to actually be on board? You know, we saw Tyrion talking about how, well, she's probably laying a trap for us. And we saw Cersei saying like, oh, sure, I'd like to bide my time and figure out what to do until we can finally get rid of Daenerys. But do you think that she will be so convinced? Is there any chance that that happens? I think that she's going to be convinced to play ball for a minute. Uh, I think that, you know, the the visual evidence of an undead creature, uh, even though she already has that evidence and the fact that the mountain is under her employ. But, but I he's think not this, evil. 
Right. Well, not, you know, evil against her, at right. least. You know, evil towards whoever she needs him to be evil towards. I think that this, you know, undead monster from north of the wall, I think, is going to be a selling point. I think that she's going to realize, yeah, let's probably do something about that. And I think that she's probably going to be the only one of those three, of John, Daenerys, and, and Cersei. I think that she would be the only one that would really have another eye on the War for the Iron Throne. Like, I think that she is the one of the three of them that would be split-brained in her focus. John certainly doesn't give much of a hoot about the Iron Throne. Daenerys cares about it, but right now she cares a whole lot more about getting payback against the the monsters that, you know, destroyed one of her, her children. I think Cersei is the one who is so cynical and... And so, you know, she is the daughter of Tywin Lannister, the man who organized the Red Wedding, who used a sacred event uh, to butcher an entire army. So it would not, you know, this is the person who destroyed the Sept of Baylor just to really get like maybe 10, 15 people killed. She killed thousands of people and destroyed a huge monument, a landmark here in King's Landing that had been standing for centuries. So I think that she is definitely somebody who is, even if she sides with this war against the White Walkers, she's always going to have an eye on taking down John and taking down Danny and I think that that's when we're going to start getting into trouble in like late final season I think that maybe the uh, the real threat of mankind will, will rear its head once again in the form of Cersei Lannister so at this point in time, I feel like that we're in a weird spot six episodes into the season because we came into this talking about how can Danny be stopped? I mean, she has three dragons. She has these armies. She has these alliances. She's golden. And how can Cersei stop her? And we saw Cersei actually mount quite the resistance to what Daenerys is doing. But now we look up to the Night King and we see him marching with his army. Now, he has an ice dragon, and it doesn't seem as though the dragons are this uh, major game ender in terms of that storyline. So do you see any vulnerability for the Night King? Yeah, I do. Um, so one of the prophecies that is very popular in the books, in A Song of Ice and Fire, and maybe less so on Game of Thrones, but I know that you know this one, Rob, and I'm sure we've talked about it before. The dragon has three heads. Uh, this is something that has been said multiple times throughout this story, and it refers to the idea that whatever is going to you know, save humanity from the coming darkness, from the great war to come. Uh, it, the, the implication is that it's going to be a three-headed effort. Uh, certainly there were three dragons. Uh, it seemed to be that there were probably going to be three characters that fulfill this prophecy of Azor Ahai, who is this fabled figure that is supposed to come and light our darkest hour, as Optimus Prime would say. Uh, and I think that most people just looked at Daenerys and Jon Snow as two of the three dragon riders very easily, lock and loaded. You know, they're both Targaryens. That that makes sense. But who's the third? And a lot of attention has been on maybe Tyrion. Tyrion could be the guy. There's certainly the theories about Tyrion possibly being a secret Targaryen. He's also the third most readily identifiable main character on the show, I would think. And in this story, I think you could look at Jon, Danny, and Tyrion as those three. But the, the twist, I think, is... The Night King, you know, that's a that's a third head. This is a guy who has the third dragon. And now we're looking at this situation where there are two dragons on the right side of the line and one dragon that is on the wrong side of the line. So is that the satisfaction of the dragon has three heads? It could be. But it could also be that there is still one character that could ride a dragon in a manner of speaking, and that would be Bran Stark. So I think that Bran Stark might be coming into play here. Uh, there is the, the scene where Bran comes to the Three-Eyed Raven at the end of season four, and the Three-Eyed Raven tells Bran, you will never walk again. 
but you will fly. And that promise has been out there for a long time now. And certainly, Rand has flown uh, via Raven in the past. Even oh, I thought season. you were going to say when Jamie pushed him out the window. And I was going <laughs> to say, that is way wrong, Josh. He made, he made the brand man fly. No, uh, I'm talking about Ravens. I'm talking about uh, that's so Craven, that's so Raven. Uh, Brand has flown in that capacity before, but I think that you know the the exciting prospect of a kid who can warg into all of these different animals and can see all over the place and see all over history, uh, and you know has this ability to to transfer his consciousness into other living beings or into other entities. I think that you're seeing the building blocks, or at least this is where I'm seeing it going. Uh, where Bran could eventually, in like a moment of like desperation, where everyone is in so much trouble and the Night King is wrecking so much stuff, I think you can imagine the scenario where Bran, who has been groomed for a purpose, who has been groomed to to help humanity in its darkest hour and doesn't know exactly why yet, and he keeps talking about how I have to be ready, maybe he is being trained for the moment where he has to hop into the body of the undead Viserion. Maybe he has to hijack that dragon. Maybe he is the the third head, and maybe he is able to steal this nuclear warhead back from the White Walkers. It's interesting. I think there is some precedent going back to last night's episode where we saw one of the White Walkers slain and a bunch of whites fall to the ground. So I think that we're establishing that mechanism for the dead being controlled by the person who is like maybe warging into all of these people because we haven't seen Bran warg into anything undead yet. So I don't know if we are positive he has that ability, but if that's how Night King is able to control Viserion as a undead dragon, then maybe Bran could sort of hack in and then steal control from him. Oh my god, I just love the idea of like Bran as Mr. Robot right now. Yeah. Just like get, get the get the like the fur coated hoodie on his head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <That'd> be- <laughs> Hello, hello, friend. I mean, it really kind of writes itself right now. I mean, he does uh, see his father in visions as well. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's definitely true. Uh, but I think that like Bran could could hijack the dragon itself, less so the Night King. Um, although I guess that that could be a thing as well. Uh, he could. That would probably be easier. I don't know why you would hijack a dragon when you could just hijack the Night King and then just like toss yourself off of the dragon. Like that seems to be the move. But yeah, I think like Beric Dondarrion even points out in this episode. Uh, what if we just kill that guy? What if we just kill the Night King? Won't everybody drop because he's the guy in charge and ultimately responsible for like most of these resurrections? So I think that the the table has been set for how uh, how the White Walkers will ultimately get untangled. I think it's going to take a while before we get there, and then who knows how the heck like the the human conflicts get untangled? Like I think that's a lot trickier. But the mechanisms for how to defeat the White Walkers were presented in this episode. So while all of the effects were dazzling in terms of the battle scenes, that some of my favorite stuff in this episode was just the uh, walk and talk moments between all of these uh, different characters that we have not seen interacting too much together before. Did you have any favorite moments from those things? I think that when, uh, when Tormund Giants Bane came up to the Hound and says... You are the one they call the dog. I don't know that I've laughed that hard at Game of Thrones ever. Uh, I just, that killed me. I don't know why, but just the way that he approached it, it was just, you're the one they call the dog. It was just 
remarkable. Uh, really great to see those two characters together. I think um, the the fact that they both have that shared Brienne history mm-hmm. uh, it was was a was a great note to call on. I thought that the moment where Tormund was getting um, uh, dragged underwater, I really thought we were losing him there. I yeah. thought that that I thought that that was it, and I was, it was, a good I was sell. really yeah they sold it, and it was really reminiscent of one of my favorite chapters from the books. There's a, a brand chapter where uh, I. I think I've talked about this on the podcasts before where there's a moment where Bran and his allies are going to the three eyed Raven for the first time and they get ambushed by a bunch of whites. And that happens on the show as well. But it's like more like, I don't know. It's like the more like uh like the Argonaut skeletal thing right. that's going on there. Like it's definitely more of a horror show in the book. And this like felt like the perspective you get from Bran in that chapter, what we're seeing here with Tormund. So I loved that. I thought that that was really amazing. Well, a week ago you and I talked about the odds of each character surviving uh, somehow I mean, if you took the under, you were looking good. And it turns out that of those seven, only Thoros of Mir is the casualty. And we almost like lost him twice. I kind of thought he was dead after the bear thing. And then they brought him back and then only just to kill him later in the episode. They should have just let him be dead after the bear. But then it wouldn't have been such a peaceful way for him to go, right? You know, it's one of the best ways to go. Is no, to just it's drift not. Off into the cold. No, it's not. That's not one of the best ways. <laughs> yeah, like to like you know hang on to like the nightmares of being mauled by a bear for like four days afterwards, and then you go. I don't know. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, I do. I, I was surprised that we didn't lose uh, Thoros when he was attacked by the bear, and I was really surprised that we only lost Thoros of this hunting party. I mean, I think in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense given what they were trying to do here in the episode. I think that they really wanted to build up those expectations where these guys are on this faded mission. It includes faded. this one guy. It includes this one. We're not doing that again. It includes this one guy who has uh, who has died six times. Another guy who has already died once before uh, and all of these people who seem to have just been pushed towards this moment in time. The Hound was kind of left for dead. Right, exactly. Like, Jorah Mormont has gotten all of the victories that you can expect him to get. And so, like, they and they give him, like, a ton of goodbye scenes in the episode leading up to this. So, there are a lot of reasons to expect that we could lose a ton of characters here. And instead, we only lose Thoros. And I think that's to disarm you for the moment where we lose the dragon. You know, like, one dragon certainly equals losing, like, you know, five of these seven characters i think uh in terms of the magnitude of it like we wondered before the season rob who will be the hodor of game of thrones season seven and it turns out i think it's viserion are people as emotional about losing viserion today or is it the fact that now he has been flipped into a weapon for the night king Mm, if yeah, we just a, lost Viserion and he did not become reanimated as an undead ice dragon, do you think people would be as upset at the end of the episode? I think you would still remember the night you watched Game of Thrones and a dragon died. Like, I feel like that would still be something that sticks in your mind. But I do think that the added uh, insult to injury of this dragon coming back into the mix, like, I think that that's what makes it really memorable and makes it really horrifying. So, yeah, I think that that's going to be, you know, that that's obviously huge end game material stuff like you know the white walkers really did not need any help becoming more powerful but now they're more powerful uh now they've got their own warhead you know that's something that benioff and weiss are talking about it in those terms and alan taylor the director said the same thing of like this is this is the wmd for the white walkers the weapon of mass destruction that they were waiting for and now they've got one 
and with only seven episodes left, that's that's terrifying. That's scary. So I think that we're going to see. Uh, I think that you know, if this was an action-packed first half of like a final two-part season, I think that the the second half looks uh, it stands to be even more of a blockbuster, which I think is going to go well with many fans. But based on this episode, you know, this is not an episode that I think that everybody has responded well to, which I think is interesting because usually the penultimate episodes of the season of Game of Thrones are just like the declarative, like decisive fan favorite episode of a season. I don't think that most people are saying that about Beyond the Wall. What's your take on that? I've had my issues with the episode, but mostly from the Winterfell storyline. I would say that for the stuff that is actually beyond the wall in this episode, unless we're going to go back and nitpick the plan again, but I feel like we sort of did that from last week. I think we have to say, okay, that is what the plan is at this point. I didn't have an issue with the stuff in the uh, North North. I only had some you know grievances continuing with the stuff uh, in the South as Tormund would say you didn't have any issues with uh with just how fast it went for daenerys to get that raven and fly all the way up to the to the island in the lake you have no problem with that whatsoever i mean for me it just seems like we're relitigating the same thing over and over again if we're gonna open up that wound i mean to me i felt like that in the previous week where we were bouncing back and forth from Dragonstone to King's Landing, uh, then uh, back to Dragonstone, and then to Eastwatch all in the same episode. To me, I mean, if you want to get on the Gendry running thing, I think that's probably uh, the most egregious of the things in this episode. But Run, Gendry! We don't know how fast the dragons can fly. I don't think we have a radar gun on these guys. So, Man, that'd be great to have. The ravens seem to, you know, get get from place a to place. Yeah. Right. So, you know, if it's, I don't know, how many hours to get from Eastwatch to Dragonstone, how many hours by Dragon to get from Dragonstone to Eastwatch, I don't know. Like, I can, like, I'm willing to concede all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I asked this uh, of Alan Taylor while I had him on the line just because I felt like it worth, it's worth uh, asking the director of the episode. So I, I said to him, there are some people people wondering about the timeline of the episode how Gendry could reach Eastwatch and then send a raven to Dragonstone and have it reach Daenerys and have her travel up to the island on the frozen lake all while John and his allies are just like out there on the frozen lake so did you and the writers have any conversations about the timing of events and this was his response he said we did we did a few things like getting deliberately hazy about how much time is passing because it's so dark in the frozen lake and you don't know how many days or nights you may have witnessed we tried to make it a little ambiguous and give it some Wait for it. Wiggle room on that end. We were aware that we were asking for people's suspended disbelief. Plausible impossibilities is what you're aiming for. But I did read one review where they could just not get over the flight time of the Raven and that that ruined the show for them. If that's the way you're watching the show, I'm sorry it's not working for you. I hope somebody will argue back with the exact kilometer distance between Eastwatch and Dragonstone and just keep the argument going. I'm sure David and Dan have some idea that it's logistically possible, but for some people... It was a it was a strain to believe all of that. Strigoi, uh, I believe that the um, uh, by the way that the that the review he may be referencing may belong to none other than a friend of the podcast who will be joining us after the season wraps. Terry Schwartz. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because this definitely was not working out for Terry Schwartz. <laughs> I can say that much. Look, I, I think I could wrap my head around this one. Let's say that they were out on the ice for 24 hours. Say it took Gendry solo running was able to travel back to Eastwatch. Say that he was gone 10 hours 
and you know feel like the the raven took what eight or nine hours to fly to east watch and the dragon made it in three or four hours uh, i think we're close enough close enough Close enough. I'm not going to get too upset about it. I do think, you know, in terms of like the relitigating the stuff from last week, like relitigating the plan, it was a bad plan. It was this a bad is, plan. Yeah. This is a bad plan. This is, they, they've <laughs> lost a guy to the bear. Why didn't they just grab the dude who got mauled by the bear and bring him back or just like have Thoros die? Like, hey, Thoros, maybe this is why you guys are coming all the way. Maybe you're the one who's supposed to die and we're supposed to tie you up. And we're supposed to bring you back and you're supposed to save the day that way. Ever thought about that? Huh? Yeah. No? Well, Josh, could you explain that? Because I was watching the episode with our friend Alex Kidwell. And I asked that very same question of like, oh, okay, good. That guy is dead. Can they just take him? And what he was saying was that, well, no, now a white walker needs to come along and reanimate that person. It's not just any it's not like the walking dead where when you die, then, you know, two, three hours later, you will just reanimate as a zombie. Maybe that well, that would make more sense. That would make more sense if you really need a white walker to bring you back from beyond the grave. Then that is what you need. And you got to go hunting for one of those guys so that makes more sense hopefully that's uh that's how it works mechanically but i think that the mechanics of it the logistics of it are at least hazy in terms of the in terms of the book story and we really haven't seen it play out too much on the show as well beric dondarian lives that you have him as the most likely to die in this episode i did I'm not shocked. disagree with that pick i thought he was the number one pick on the board in anybody's uh, game of thrones death drafts going into beyond the wall why I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm surprised. Pleasantly surprised. I mean, that must mean that they've got some really fun idea for Barrick in the future. You know, not for nothing, maybe my whole, you know, insane Jon Snow theory of Jon Snow dying and Barrick Dondarrion bringing him back to life. Maybe that's not off the table yet. Maybe it's just in the future. Maybe he's still hanging around because he has to transfer his flame into Jon Snow to bring him back from the brink one more time. That could be in the future at some point or another. Uh, I'm just going to hang on to that for, you know, as long as I possibly can. Okay. Uh, but that being said, Beric is alive for a reason. Beric's alive for some future purpose. Uh, that man will die for sure before <laughs> the entirety of Game of Thrones is over. There's just no way he doesn't. And if he doesn't and like everyone else is dead, then that would be kind of incredible. Uh, but Beric... Barrick's going to die eventually. Hold on, Josh. According to prophecy, doesn't Azor High have a flaming sword? Oh, my God. So is <laughs> Barrick just the the guy, like the stealth main character of Game of the Thrones? The prince who was promised? I would be all right with that. You know, he's a badass. I really like Richard Dormer in the role. Uh, Might be a little bit of a letdown. It would be like a kind of tiny little bit of a letdown like if the ice dragon like marches past the wall if the night king is able to fly over the wall and just like raise westeros and beric dondarrion is like the only person who somehow doesn't die and he's just like going on a one-man mission to destroy all the white walkers for like the final four or five episodes of the show that'd be ballsy it'd be kind of great one other quick beric question the flaming sword is that magic or does that work with lighter fluid because it seems like that i if i was freezing to death i think i would have turned that thing on i don't understand why they didn't use that while they were freezing to death i agree i agree completely i don't think that it's lighter fluid i think that it's part of the lord of lights magic and beric and thoros are somehow able to produce this fiery sword uh but yeah, I don't know why, even if it was lighter fluid, why wouldn't you guys just like warm up, heat yeah. up? 
You lost Thoros because you were too stingy on the fire. Yeah, turn on Thoros. I mean, he's not going to use it anymore. The Lord of Lighter Fluid. Yeah, I think (sighs) that they really ought to have used a little bit more of that. Uh, Poor Thoros. Are you sad to lose Thoros? I mean, he was was the one who we thought would die uh, the most past uh, Beric. So no real surprise that we lost him here. Just surprising that he's the only one we lost. Yeah, he had exactly one iconic moment in the show for me, and that was top knot. (laughs) (laughs) That was his top-notch moment. Yeah, so that was it. Uh, you know, I will wait until your off-season countdown of the top 100 greatest Game of Thrones characters to see where he places. But I think I have him outside of my uh, top 70. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. That's right. probably right. No such list is coming, at least as, it, as it is. <laughs> you say as that it, now, and then we'll be is, in like January. Like, as okay. it is currently planned. That's <laughs> <laughs> definitely true. Definitely true. All right, Josh, now you have been down this road before where you, like the hound, think you see something in the flames. Did you happen to catch something going on with Jon Snow's sword in this episode? Oh, God, yes. Yes, yes. And I feel like I'm losing my mind. Like, I feel like I'm slowly going mad. Like, I'm going full Aerys Targaryen here. Uh, yeah, it's the eyes. It's the eyes again, Rob. The eyes, the eyes have it once more. A song of eyes and fire. Uh, yeah, this has been making the rounds recently that there is a moment in the episode where when John is dragged underneath the water, uh, and he comes up for air. Uh, Longclaw, his Valyrian sword that Jorah Mormont graciously allowed John to continue holding on to. Uh, it's just on the a sheet of ice, and then John bursts up from the water, and the camera is focused on Longclaw before John comes up, and then John comes up, and the camera now focuses on John. But in that transition of focus, there is a moment where. Longclaw's eyes, the hilt of Longclaw is this direwolf face, and the eyes are all white. And then when John hops up, the white eyes are now, uh, there's, there's now a pupil in one of the white eyes. And it just, it happens very quickly, but it happens decisively. And I brought this up with Alan Taylor during the interview. I brought this up with the director of this episode, and he said to me, he said, here, let me, let me pull up the exact quote. He said, that's our fan base working very, very hard on our behalf. I think it's a fan-created moment, I have to say. And he laughed as well. And I had to tell him, I went back. I looked on HBO Go. It's real. It happens. You can see Longclaw's eye being white, and then suddenly there's a pupil there. And Alan Taylor says, well, then they pulled a fast one on the director. I had nothing to do with that. Maybe Longclaw is actually magic and just doing something on its own. Uh, But if this was something that was intentionally placed on Game of Thrones, Rob, it had nothing to do with the director. And maybe it's just there to troll everybody like yours truly, who was so obsessed with Jon Snow's eyes when he was killed at the end of season five, looking for any clue we could possibly find that Jon was going to come back from the dead and his eyes changed color. Or maybe they didn't, but maybe they did, but they probably didn't. But Longclaw's eyes definitely change. Okay, Go so back and watch it. It's for real. You guys can also check this out. I'm looking at the Game of Thrones Reddit, and there's a thread about this posted by Meba54, and there is an animated GIF uh, where you can see this. I think I have an explanation. I think I have the explanation here. Cause All right, I want to know. I want to know. John climbs out of the water, and his hand comes up, 
and he puts his hand down to pull himself from the ice and there is a sloshy splash when he puts his hand when he puts his palm down on the ice and you see water go flying I think that's a drop of water that landed wow. on the sword. Oh my god. So it's just a uh it's just a matter of just like some dirt, some schmutz. I just think it's a drop of water from when he splashed getting out that landed fortuitously on Longclaw's eye. But right, I, I'm I think that's right what now. it is. Oh wow, yep, done. Done, done, done. I think that's good. I think that's right. I'm watching it right now in slow motion. John's arm bursts out. There is water flying everywhere. And then suddenly you see a droplet on Longclaw's face. It like almost splashes the camera when he splashes like his hand getting out of there. So I don't know. But the director's answer was not cryptic. Like he did not say, I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens next week. Like he like categorically denied that it was something from the show. You know, Kit Harrington has improved on Game of Thrones in so many ways since he was a young actor in that first season of the show. But his splash acting just really not good. Uh, not good. He's just he's just very aggressive in his splash acting. Yeah. You know, I did feel like that there's not enough talk about Jon Snow not dying of hypothermia because <laughs> uh, that I actually uh, know a guy. His name is Jack Dawson. And he talked about how that uh, what happens when you go into water that cold that you can't you're, you get paralyzed. You can't even move. I watched Titanic the other day. So yeah, this is just this is very timely. Very timely. The last thing you could do is like get out of the water and then run around and then ride a horse for a day in the freezing cold. How about the fact that Uncle Benjamin showed up for somehow even less screen time than he had in season six of Game of Thrones? Like he showed up literally just to die. He showed up to like put John on a horse, say one thing to John, and then just get mauled by the zombies. Well, that's why he got brought back. And that's then, a br- yeah, a brutal power brutal. move. Power move. Wow. Josh, I want to talk about what's going on in Winterfell with the Sansa and Arya storyline. And do you want to talk about it, or do you feel like compelled that you have to talk about it? I don't feel like I'm compelled, but I haven't talked to you about it. And I know that you were frustrated with this as of last week's episode. The thing that really just bothers me about it is that there's nothing to do there. There's no satellite TV at Winterfell or, you know, the mobile phone or the internet. What are Sansa and Arya doing all day that they just can't catch up? So what have you been doing the last five years? Great question. Fantastic question. They really should just like sit down and talk things through. I Let think me prob- tell you a story. Yeah. You know, I think the problem is Arya Stark is a loony. You know, she's a she's a she's a murderer. She's killed a lot of people. She could also remove the dead people's faces and wear them as her own. Uh, and that is a person. Oh, who how has, come when Ed Sheeran is around that she can be all fun and, ha- and have a drink and hang out, eat some rabbit. But with Sansa, she can't even fake it. You know, I think that there is a point. Uh, you know, there is something to the idea that that Arya and Sansa were never exactly friendly. Uh, they were really always at each other's throats when they were when they were younger. Uh, are they exactly going to be best friends as soon as they catch up? I mean, Sansa and Jon were able to patch things up, but Arya is an edgier character than Jon Snow every day of the week. So it doesn't make, you know, no sense that these two aren't just immediately fast friends after all of this time away from each other. But I think, like, the leap from there to, like, really threatening violence and really getting creepy and 
it's definitely driving towards some sort of violent confrontation, I think, or at least like maybe Arya getting exiled from Winterfell is not off the table to me, or like whether it's a self-imposed exile where she's like, what am I doing? I got to get out of here. I do think that that's ultimately the point with what's happening with, at least as it pertains to Arya, is I do think that this is a character who is coming to realize or will come to realize that there is no true place like home for her anymore, that she's a lot more no one than she would care to admit. I just don't love the way that the show is doing it. It really does feel manufactured, this uh, this rivalry between Arya and Sansa. Can you clear up the business with Brienne? What was Littlefinger trying to tell Sansa about Brienne? And what is Sansa actually doing with sending Brienne to go to King's Landing? Well, Sansa's getting the note, right? Like, she's been summoned to King's Landing, and so she's not going to go on her own because she's not going to be caught dead going to King's Landing. She's the only Stark with sense <laughs> in mm-hmm. that regard. Uh, she knows that that's not a great idea. She cannot trust that she would walk out of that situation alive. She's fought way too hard to get back to Winterfell, so she's not leaving. That makes sense to me. Brienne is one of her most trusted people. She feels that if Brienne goes to King's Landing, that Brienne is a good representative. And what's more, Littlefinger's point, at least, is that Brienne is sworn to protect both of you. So it's like going to be a dilemma if Arya is coming at you. That kind of didn't really make a whole lot of sense to me either. Frankly, if you're asking me to like clear up and like streamline and neaten what's happening in Winterfell, I can't do it because I really dislike this storyline and I don't like what they're doing with this on the show. What was the significance of the Valerian steel cat's paw dagger coming into play? And why did Arya hand it back to Sansa? I don't know. I mean, was it really, was it just like a sign of like, I'm not actually here to kill you? Like, I'm not actually going to cause physical violence. Is it like, here, come at me, bro. Like, come, come find me with this thing if you want to solve this problem. I'm not really sure. Did you have a theory on it? No, I just don't know why it feels like that the dagger is being shoehorned into all these different Winterfell scenes, and I still can't wrap my head around why. Well, it's Littlefinger's dagger. Littlefinger gives it to Bran. Bran gives it to Arya. Arya gives it to Sansa. So clearly Sansa now has to give it to somebody else. It's like the hot potato dagger. Like, no one can hang on to it for too long. Maybe it'll go to Jorah, who was using daggers in this past episode. Okay, we'll see uh, where it goes. Josh, can I ask you one last question before we wrap up? Of course. Where did the whites get the chain? <laughs> I was, Do you I was know? Could you ask that. somebody that? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think about that. I, I wish you had told you had told me that yesterday because uh, I I think I don't have anyone that I'm asking that question to in the next little while. But I I was one I was wondering if it was uh, is this a chain that you know when when we saw the Battle of Castle Black in season four and like we saw that like giant like scythe go down the side of the wall. Could it be that? But like what? Like the White Walkers didn't like show up to the base of the wall and claim that chain. Or at least like if that happened in Castle Black, you guys are asleep at the switch. Like that's crazy if you didn't notice that. So I don't know. Like maybe like once upon a time there were some, you know, giants with chains uh, and now they're White Walkers and or whites rather. And they've volunteered their chains to the White Walker cause. Right. Like I would get it like that the giants maybe have their own sort of cities and stuff like that. But do, do the, were the whites just like lugging that around or is the Night King just so prescient he knew at some point this was going to be coming up? Well, I do think, you know, the timeline of this show is so messy right now. And oh, it's really you think this was like, a, you know, a week later? Yeah, I think that you could pro- like you could argue that at least, right? Like, I mean, because as soon as the Night King has a dragon, like 
he's got to be in Westeros like two seconds later. Like he's going to be there immediately. Okay. So I think you just got to like give it some time. Like I think you got to give it like, yeah, I would say like a week is good. A week sounds great. Or just don't think about the timeline at all because that's where uh, nosebleeds happen. And uh, we saw how that worked out for uh, for Daniel Faraday and everybody once upon a time. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why the Night King just couldn't reanimate Viserion and then just have him fly out of the water. It doesn't seem like that they have to, you know, pull other people out and do this same sort of process. But again, what do I know about the dark arts? I guess that you really do have to like, you have to like touch the, touch the entity. You know, you gotta, he, he can't just like, turn him into a white walker from a distance. And that certainly speaks to the theory that uh, less a theory and probably more just the way that it plays out and why Jon Snow and everybody had to do what they had to do is like, you don't just turn, you don't reanimate automatically beyond the wall. Like the, the Night King has to do that for you. We are going to be getting into your feedback questions midweek. Send them in GOT at postshowrecaps.com heading into the finale. Also, you can send us your voicemails, postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail for that. And then uh, follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. I see everything he's doing over at THR. He is at Round Howard. I'm at Rob Sisterino. Uh, Josh, anything else you want to say before we close? I guess the Night King just like lifted everybody back onto their feet at hard home without ta- you know, without touching anybody. Yeah, that so. whole come at me crow. Yeah, you know, he yeah, did not have to touch them. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. The chain was cool though. Again, <laughs> now chains are chains are in. Chains are in. Was this the same process that was used at hard home, or was this more akin to what he does to Craster's babies? Was this mm. and again, was there some sort of a healing process? I mean, maybe was Viserion not dead? Was he just mostly dead? And then this was able to transform him into a white walker dragon as opposed to just white. A lot that we don't know. If you interview the Night King, ask him a bunch of those questions. Start with where did he get the chain? And then two, why did he have to touch Viserion to turn him? Yeah. And then three will be how do you strike like the coolest Night King pose? Like, what's your secret? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So lots of questions for uh, the Night King and to see what his plan of attack is moving forward. Cool. I like it. All right. Josh Wiggler, uh, uh, get some rest. Rest up. Busy finale coming up on Sunday night at 80 minute finale. And then just start the rough outline on like a cocktail napkin of a hundred greatest Game of Thrones characters. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. I think I've got the top 20, maybe top 30. I think I already have written up already on a THR. So I just got to add 70 more to the list. Is there a better Game of Thrones number? Like, uh, can you like maybe 107? Could you do that? 108 would be a great number, yeah, but, but has, that's, that's the wrong show. It's a different show. Wrong show. Wrong show. Wrong show. Sorry. All right. Well, looking forward to hearing what you guys have to say on postshowrecaps.com. And of course, uh, subscribe to make sure you don't miss our next episode. Go to postshowrecaps.com slash G-O-T iTunes and your feedback and star ratings are always appreciated. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.